Welcome to the Hustle or Bust podcast powered by Paver Art. Our mission is simple, to dive deep into the world of entrepreneurship, small business, and all the success, struggle, and challenges that need to be confronted in the pursuit of growth. We celebrate the entrepreneurial spirit, but perhaps most important, we want you to learn at least one idea that you can put into action immediately to make your investment in time worthwhile. Welcome to episode 35 of the Hustle or Bust podcast. Rodney Adams, a marine entrepreneur and founder of Mr. Home Repair, a business that he's recently launched, and he talks through Brandon, hiring his first employee, and various other considerations for launching a handyman biz. We break this episode into two parts and we cover a ton of ground. This is part one. Today, we want to welcome our special guest, Rodney Adams, better known in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area as Mr. Home Repair. Welcome to the Hustler Bus Podcast, Rodney. Thanks, guys. It's good to be here. Now, glad to have you. I got to tell you, Rodney, based on a, a review of your website, uh, mrhomerepair.com, it looks like you're the very definition of a handyman. I mean, you repair garage doors, broken windows, drywall sinks, tubs, decks, patios. I mean, the list just goes on and on. All sorts of electrical work, plumbing repairs, painting, landscape maintenance, concrete work, um, that, which, which begs a question that I'm going to ask later in, re, in regards to uh, efficiency. But um, uh, can you give us some background into how and why you decided to become an entrepreneur in this space? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> well, and later when you ask about efficiency, you should ask about quality because uh, that's a that's a lot of stuff that you got to learn how to do well. Exactly. Um, um, so my background, I did not grow up in the construction industry. Uh, my I grew up in a manual labor family. My dad has been in power line construction for uh, many, many years. Um, small town, West Texas family mostly agricultural uh, across my family tree. Uh, so I grew up fixing stuff, building stuff, watching my dad fix stuff, watching my granddad fix stuff. Like when you live in the country and you have animals and equipment and all your family members are in blue collar work, you just, that's what you do. You fix stuff and you fix your own things. Um, that seems novel now uh, in 2023, but it used to be normal um, that you just fix your own stuff. Um, <clears throat> but like a lot of a lot of folks, my my dad particularly, but but my family wanted me to go make something of myself and go to college. And I came I came up in that sort of um, decade or so where success meant go to undergraduate school. And so, without really even thinking about it, um, I left and went to undergrad and and uh, studied sports. Um, sports uh, therapy and, and uh, exercise science, that sort of stuff. And immediately after undergraduate school, I joined the Marine Corps and did that for eight years, uh, got out and went to business school and then started working for a Wall Street bank and did that for a handful of years. And then from there, moved on and started uh, working as the executive director of my church in Dallas. And so um, I tell you all that to say that I did not, I did not come from um, the, the trades, I did not come from the construction world myself, but <clears throat> as a homeowner for the first time, when I got out of the Marine Corps, 
uh, I could not find anybody to come work on my stuff. I mean, I found myself getting stood up, couldn't get estimates, you know, you want one window repair and you can only find the guy who wants to sell you $38,000 worth of new windows. You want, you know, a patio cover put over your, over your back patio. And that was the final straw. I had had some other frustrations, but I, I was calling these companies and begging them to come give me a bid to build me a patio cover, um, like a real structure. And after the second time of getting stood up, I just, I, I had this moment where I thought this is crazy. Like, why am I begging these guys to come take my money? Why do I have to work so hard? Yeah. And so I just started fixing stuff myself. And I just, I told my wife, we're, we're just doing this. I'm, I'm buying every tool I ever need to fix anything I ever want. And we'll do it as we need them. But <laughs> my first job for myself was to replace a pre-hung door. Um, and I had to call a handyman to come bail me out because <clears throat> I couldn't get the door shut once I got it in. And and it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And thankfully, um, I found one with some availability and he came over and fixed it. And it was a super simple fix. You know, if you put spray foam, if you if you spray uh, expanding spray foam between the door jam and the, the rough opening, that foam is going to push that jam uh, off off plumb from where you put it. And you're not going to be able to get your door shut. And so um, I didn't know that but I paid him 150 bucks for 20 minutes of him cutting that foam out of there. And that sort of sparked like, okay, first of all, if I can just show up with a tucked in shirt and do simple tasks that people otherwise should have known how to do themselves, there might be something here. And that was probably 15 years ago, 12 or 15 years ago, um, maybe a little bit less. And, and I've just been obsessed with this idea of residential services ever since that if you just do what you say you're going to do, and you obsess over doing quality work, I think there might be something here. Back, you said back to the uh, undergrad Marine Corps. Did you do undergrad first and then Marine Corps? Or? I did, yep. So um, left undergraduate school with a degree um, in the Marine Corps, and I'm assuming it's the same with other services. Once you have a degree, you have the option to go straight to officer candidate school. Um, I actually waived that option and went to the enlisted side first. Uh, and then went to uh, officer candidate school a few years later. So I was both an enlisted Marine and a Marine officer. Well, judging, judging from his list of bona fides, Mark, um, I, I honestly think Rodney's, Rodney's somewhere around 72 years old. So, I mean, he's, he's done so many things for so many years. It's a, you look great, by the way, for 72. I'm just Thank kidding. you. Um, I wish I were that close to retirement, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm fascinated by, and by the way, thank you for your service. The uh, I'm fascinated with the world of, I've had great experience with the armed services, right? The military. Mm -hmm. How do you compare the two experience in terms of, I guess, your growth, your development, where you are today, the undergrad versus the Marine? I know they're not mutually exclusive. They work together, but compare those two experiences. Um, in, in what way do you mean? Say, say more about that. Um what you learned from undergrad and the importance to where you're at today versus okay. the Marines. I know they're yeah. both different, but how do you kind of think through both of those? If you were 18 years old today and mm. as a senior in high school, contemplating both options and you can do them both like you did, but how do you kind of, how do you articulate both of those experiences for a young kid? Yeah. So I haven't advised a young, a young kid to go to undergraduate school in a really long time. Um, and partially because I don't think the value is there. 
Um, and I think the line is starting to make its way out that you can skip undergraduate school, go become an electrician and be making good money with no debt by the time you're 28, all that stuff. You're starting to hear more people talk about that. And I think that's true. What I, what I'm, first of all, nobody who is laser focused on what they want to do in life asks me for advice. So if you want to be an engineer, you should go to undergraduate school. Mm -hmm. um, but you're, you're probably not the kid that's asking me what they should do because you don't know whether you should go or not. If you don't know, you probably shouldn't go spend $60,000 on an education that you don't necessarily know what you're going to do with when you start. Um, I would say just go to work. Go, go make your first $50,000 somehow and then decide if you need a degree to accelerate that. Um, so I think it's, it's sometimes the younger generation gets made fun of a little bit, but I think these gap years that students take would have saved me tons of time and money, um, had I had a gap year, but, but, but I didn't. So here we are, but all my debts are paid off and now we're, now we're in good shape. Um, I would say for the Marine Corps particularly, and I can only speak on the Marine Corps and I, I use a lot of male sort of masculine language. I was in the infantry uh, at the time. There were no females in the infantry. I played sports in high school. Um, I worked manual labor jobs in college. So I've almost never worked around females. So if I say, you know, I don't advise young men to do this or that, what I really mean is just young people. Um, <clears throat> but, but the the Marine Corps, maybe to Mike's earlier point, is like, you, you, your leadership and your relational skills and your life skills and your hardships all accelerate in dog years. So for, for four years of leaving undergrad or leaving high school and getting a job at your local wherever um, versus leaving high school and joining the Marine Corps, particularly during wartime, um, even for a young guy who takes on leadership of a fire team of, of, of a few other guys, like, what you learn in that four-year period sets you up for what the majority of your peers in the, in the civilian world won't learn for two decades in their careers. Um, just you're, you have to lead and you have to lead in unfortunate circumstances. Um, you have to, you, there's, there's no one going to bail you out um, when you're leading through a difficult you know, situation. And as you guys know, <clears throat> I think Mike mentioned this in your intro video to, or your, your um, paper art video in those early days, Mike, you mentioned something about um, the bond that was created when y'all kind of put together that first project. The, nothing builds a relationship better than a shared hardship period. Yep. It's why, it's why marriages are better at 20 years than they are at two years. It's why, it's why, you know, if you can make it to year 10, it's why company leadership is better than it was at year one. I mean, it's just shared hardships, accelerate relational, everything about relationship building. And so in the Marine Corps um, and, and in the military, the, the shared hardship is on or turbo, you know, it, it's turbocharged shared hardships from boot camp all the way through deployments to everything else. And so um, I think that's why if people don't totally articulate it well, that's why people like hiring veterans. It's, <clears throat> it's a popular thing to do and there's some virtue signaling in there and whatever, but, but ultimately you know that you've, 
you're going to get someone who's dealt with something difficult and can do it with other people that they didn't grow up around. That's another thing too. Like you're used to doing very difficult things with people you would otherwise not choose to be with because you're, you get assigned to the unit that you're with. Um, And so that's why that would be the reason why I would be bullish on hiring veterans because they're already vetted. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, I'll give my own shout out. Uh, One of my career mentors, uh, Don Brunson, former chief, uh, he's retired now, chief operating officer at Monogram Foods. Uh, Steve Plater was a director of IT for me for uh, Monogram Foods. John Stevenson, he works at Paver Art. They're just up and down. They are cut differently. They're, they're my experience is yeah, we're working with a customer now. Shout out to uh, Joseph Connolly, 25 years in the Coast Guard. The way he communicates, the responsiveness, the common courtesy that he extends. I mean, just just different and different in a better way, a good way. I mean, it's just yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. The shared hardship. And there's a ton of it in small business ownership, man. And how long you, when did you start your business? What year? Uh, last year, last year in June. Yep. So um, we, I was living in Dallas, working at the church. And like I said, for the last decade or so, I've been fixing everything, building everything. We had a little farm when we lived in Texas. So I built the, the woodshed and the coops and all the stuff, you know, so I've been building and repairing things for a long time not to mention my own stuff and um, had an opportunity when we moved, we left Texas and moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, fortunately to have a little bit of runway financially from a home sale and some previous income. um, I just said, I've got to do it. I have to, I have to test this idea that if you just do what you say you're going to do and do a good job. And if you can't do a job, say you're not the right guy for the job and you charge a fair price that I think there's a business here. And I've kind of felt like this thing's either gonna flame out by August or um, it's gonna be a thing. And I think it's a thing. So oh, I'm pretty pumped up about that. Well, let me ask you to say more about that. So you're saying the gap that you saw is that there's a lack, of, is it lack of professionalism or follow-up or that, that customer service piece? Oh, totally. Um, and I think now in this city particularly, and maybe it's everywhere, but but, uh, service professionals in Tulsa are notorious for not calling you back. Everybody, everybody that I know has had experiences where I need my plumbing fixed. I call these three companies. I couldn't get a call back. I called this other company that came by. So that's who I hired. Most of the time, if you just show up, you're the one who gets hired. Um, and so <clears throat> for me, with my background, having a Wall Street background, a church background, a military background, my the the top end of my skill set is people. I'm a relate highly relational person and dealing with people, professionalism, um, and then also from a business perspective, thinking both strategically and operations wise, I felt like I was uniquely set up to do well in this business. I would say for the handyman mm-hmm. business, particularly, and shout out to whoever handyman you have out there listening to this most of your handymen are going to be solo operators and typically on the lower end of the sort of, um, how should I say it? We'll just call it the functioning scale. And I don't mean to be disrespectful because I don't have a good word for that. But generally, if someone is trades oriented and wants to do it for their career, the, the smart thing to do is to go get a license and make more money 
So go, go become an electrician, an HVAC tech, a plumber. Handyman as a career is not really a thing anymore. Um, a lot of older guys are aging out and retiring. They used to do this for a living. It might not have even been right. their first career, but <clears throat> young guys are not just falling all over themselves to become handymen. And so I kind of felt like if, if, if someone like me with a fresh face that could articulate themselves well, who, and I do price myself at the top of the market, but you're paying for, you're getting a premium service with a premium guy, not, not to, to sound weird about that, but you know, I don't want anybody to ever hesitate to, to refer me to their grandmother, right? They don't need to vet me. They just send me over there and I can walk into their grandmother's house and install her curtain rods and clean out her dryer vents and do whatever. And she doesn't have to worry about it. And so I charge at the top end of the market uh, for that reason. But if you just do a quick Google search um, in any ge geographical area, um, A, you're going to have a hard time finding handymen that you can kind of tell what it is exactly they do. Um, you probably are not going to see a photo of them themselves. Like you don't know exactly who you're hiring. And most of them don't understand how to name their companies to where you actually know what you're buying. So Mr. Home Repair of Tulsa tells you what you need to know. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so Excalibur Services tells you nothing, but there's, but there's all those types of business. So I felt not only just on the demand side, but also <clears throat> just on the supply side, like there's opportunities to, to differentiate yourself with just basic marketing and business knowledge. Um, and so far that's proven out. Where, um, if you don't mind me asking, where did you accumulate the lion's share of your mechanical slash handyman capabilities? I mean, there's, uh, you've got a very disparate background, which is mm -hmm. very interesting too, <clears throat> but you know, how did all that come about? I mean, you just don't start and by the way, uh, one of the uh, one of the stories I would want to tell would be the story of my dad, who was a, a CPA who fancied himself a handyman and was not um, never didn't grow up in that world. But he he did his best. His biggest problem was he had no tools. He thought he had enough tools, but, you know, a wrench, a pair of pliers, a hammer and a drill isn't going to get the job done most of the time. But, um, you know, where did you come about your skills and this accumulation of tools that that had to be that's interesting. You must spend a tremendous amount of time at uh, Home Depot and Lowe's, I would think. that, mm -hmm. And, I and, live there. and yeah. flea market and flea markets. It's my vacation home. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. Um, well, first of all, like I said, I don't know how many homeowners would do this, but, and thankfully I'm still married, but my first home project really was ripping out an exterior door and trying to install a pre-hung door. Um, and I was handy before then. I mean, I'd been doing stuff with tools my whole life. Sure. Um, but there's a difference, like you said, between being handy and then actually being able to do professional work. Um, patching drywall can either look like there was never a hole there or it can look like your kid's art project. It, <laughs> it, it's really, it's not, there is an art to it. Um, right. 
And so for me, what I, what I did was early on, just to be clear, like I would say no to things I couldn't do. Um, I made sure that I did not do the things I knew I couldn't do to a high professional degree. Um, but I knew that there are a handful of tasks that are always going to be needed. So touch up paint, drywall, um, basic electrical, basic plumbing. And I've been doing basic electrical and plumbing again forever, but drywall, basically I just punched holes in my, in my wall and, and practiced and obsessed over 30 hours of, of YouTube videos on patching drywall and different techniques and different tools. That's another thing too, that I'm trying to draw out of my Twitter feed is you, you could, you could easily convince yourself that you're way handier than you really are. Um, you might be able to patch your hole to a, a degree of your own satisfaction, but patching Sally's hole that she has to look at every day um, might be two different results. And so I Great can't point. tell you how many hours of drywall patching and mudding and taping that I've obsessed over on YouTube to, to the extent that I've probably watched four hours of just the differences between the different types of mud that you can buy. So <clears throat> that's a lot of time, right? Like I could be doing other things, but, but the way that I wanted to build my business was doing great work and getting good reviews and getting referrals. And the only way to do that is to do is to actually do those things. And so the first, the first months of my starting my company were not spent in customer homes or I actually spent training myself. Um, going to the local uh, technical college, they have adult um, part-time classes at night where you can, where they teach you how to DIY stuff, but from, from service pros from other industries. So I've been to a masonry class. I've been to a drywall class. I've been to, uh, you know, welding classes. I've been to all these things to, to just pick up every little bit that I can, you know, what types of taping knives should you be using in these different circumstances that yield these professional results. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so for someone like me who has desires of, of growing a big company and getting wealthy and all those things that we all seem to want, I have to stay laser focused on how can I do the best drywall patch job I can do next week for Sally, because that is going to get her to tell her, tell her friends about me, which gets me more business. And so, um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm kind of belaboring the point, but I just can't stress enough how much study and obsession goes into doing a good job, um, particularly in the handyman uh, field. When you're balance, you know, when you're trying to balance um, what an entrepreneur actually has to go through on a daily basis, that balance is between doing the actual work, what you're good at. Uh, what's making you the money that you're making, and then the actual running of your business. They're two, they're two completely different avenues that you have to go down. How do, you, uh, how do you expedite that? How do you, you know, how much time do you spend on the business and how much time do you spend actually out there soliciting? How much time do you spend out there actually doing the work? How, does, how, do, you, how do you achieve your balance when it comes to that sort of thing, especially when you're a sole proprietor? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, well, and you're, 
you're kind of hitting on the crux of the entire thing. Um, <clears throat> I was fortunate enough early on to have income streams that, that propped me up and some savings to where I didn't need to be fixing drywall every day when I first started the business. And so I would build a little bit on the business and then I would go get some customers and then I would build a little bit on the business and I would go get some customers. So, you know, I only, I only made, you know, in the first three or four months, I only made $15,000 in total revenue mm -hmm. um, because I didn't have to, I didn't, I wasn't relying on, on <clears throat> that revenue for my family's dinner. And so, so I made a point to specifically in the first couple of months to not advertise that I'm doing this stuff so that I could build the business. And, and I built in processes to where now I can do admin a lot less and do more, you know, billable hours more often throughout the week. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say the single hardest thing I've done in business or in my career so of anything so far has been going from just me to hiring a full-time employee. Um, because now you start to uncover all the things that, that I just sort of smooth over because it's my business that I need to actually build a process for, uh, for this guy. Um, and that has been incredibly difficult. And so I make sure that for me and him, we don't, I don't schedule customers on Monday morning. Um, cause we want to, I want to, I want to be very specific with him about the expectations for the week. Talk about any odd jobs that might require some strange materials that we don't have or research that's needed before we get to someone's house on Thursday. And then I try not to schedule too much on Friday afternoon for me to do admin cleanup and go through and kind of get ready for the following week. And I work on weekends too, but um, the, the, the short answer, Mike, is you don't, there is no balance. I, I, there is no balance. You're just busting your tail constantly um, trying to make everything work. But now that the business is starting to really generate enough revenue to justify hiring people, um, I can set, you know, my guy off to meet with customers and do jobs. And now I'm moving more to an estimator type role. Um, and most likely I'm going to take on money here soon so that I can really hit the pedal because you either need to be a one man shop or you need to be a five man shop. Like it, it does, it's not really economical to have, to have one other guy. I, I mean, I think people do it, but I pay him a salary. I don't want to, I don't want a part-time 1099 guy who's out getting other jobs and is probably going to work for someone else in the next six months. Um, I want, I want him to be feel taken care of. So he'll be loyal to me so we can build something big. When you say check it out, you're talking about investor money to scale up. Uh, probably it's probably going to be a mix of debt and equity, but yeah, I need to, I need to bring on, I need to, I need to, um, <clears throat> I need to, I need, I need to scale quicker than I think I can do by just bootstrapping with what comes in every week. How do you define kind of what, what is the scale of the opportunity? If you, if you did this, if you had one full-time guy, is it a geographical business, obviously mm -hmm. keep mm -hmm. one full guy. You can, what do you think? Three, four, four guys on a crew out in homes for 40 hours a week. You think it looks like that or. Oh, I, I totally think there's room for that. Um, without question. What, for me, what's more interesting is to think about 
is to think about the different lines of business. So you have your residential, single family residential line, which, you know, Sally calls and, and, you know, her smoke detectors beeping and she needs her air filters changed. And, you know, there's some caulking, cracking around a window. Great. Um, So there's that sort of line of business. Then as I see it, there is what I think is a, it's related, but a separate line of business through realtors and doing TRRs on home sales. So every home sale, you know, has a, a list of things that need to be repaired or replaced or treated. Um, and they're usually on a tight timeline and it's an all day list. So you need to get over there, give a bid, and then you've got eight things that need to be remedied before they can continue in their, in their you know, toward closing. So to me, that's a kind of a different line of business. It's the same type of work, but it comes with a different sense of urgency. Sure. Uh, and you're actually selling to realtors more so than more to more so than to the homeowner. Mm-hmm. Cause ultimately if a realtor says, this is my handyman that I like, you're hired. Like, cause, cause they just want it done in 48 hours. They're not right. getting bids for, for all this stuff that needs to be done. <clears throat> and then, and then there's this, this niche, I think within the class B uh, multifamily space where class A multifamily owners are your large, you know, 50,000, 100,000 door private equity type um, multifamily operators that have in-house maintenance teams and very sophisticated processes. Uh, class C are typically guys who are lower end of the market, probably didn't underwrite maintenance into their assets as uh, sophisticated as they should. And so they're doing a lot of the right. maintenance themselves. But then in the class B space, you have sophisticated investors who did underwrite, um, you know, three to 5% of total value into their maintenance budget every year, but they don't have quite the scale to hire in-house uh, maintenance techs. And so for them, I think there's a real opportunity to sort of be a fractional, <laughs> fractional in-house uh, maintenance program where you're, where you're doing preventative maintenance on their apartment units, but then also you're in a position to run their turnovers when tenants move out. Um, and so there's sort of a, there's sort of a, a growth engine there as well. And then your typical remodel. So if you think about the handyman, the life cycle of a handyman and the customer, a plumber might go to one customer's house once every couple of years, or let's think a bit like, in your house, you might have a plumber once every couple of years, once every five years, even. I mean, I've had, I've been a homeowner for a while now. I've probably had two plumbers over ever, but a handyman, there's an infinite number of things you could work on in somebody's house. And so if you've been over there once or twice, you're going to be the first call, even if it's for something that you don't really do. So I get called for people's plumbing and electrical all the time. In my state, the regulations are such that you can do some things, but not everything. Um, but then if somebody wants to remodel their bathroom or if they want to um, add some, some luxury vinyl plank in their laundry room, they're going to call you. And so you start to get these larger, um, maybe not full remodels, but larger than handyman projects. And so that, that comes with a totally different skill set because you're now you're like a little mini GC. You're overseeing different, different vendors that come in that do things that you don't do. Um, so honestly, Mark, you can scale this to anything you want. Um, 
And, and that's what I intend to do. Uh, I intend to run a crew of full-time guys that they themselves can also um, run subs if we need to run larger projects. And we're just going to do as much work as people will give us. You know, the, I'm looking at your website, the, the, I don't know if you're familiar. I'm looking, the first thing that caught my eye on your website, you've got this great clean shirt with a great name, Mr. Home Repair. The -hmm. business that automatically came into my mind. I don't know. Are you familiar with 1-800-GOT-JUNK? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they branded the trash removal or junk removal business. Great blue trucks, the 1-800-GOT-JUNK, great name. And they're all over the country now. I mean, he built a great little business that's national. A franchise model. I don't know if you thought about a franchise model, but that's the first thing I yeah. thought of when I saw your front page of your website. Yeah. So I actually built my branding um, based off of what I thought would become a franchise model. Um, and and where I've had multi- I've had conversations with different folks. Um, I don't know where that'll go. Um, I think for one, with a franchise, y- you need to show um, past performance, like past past financial performance um, when you when you put out your franchise disclosure documentation. And so I need a couple of years under my belt, I think, before I feel comfortable doing that. But I am building I am building a model that that hopefully will be scalable in a franchise type way. Um, I spent money on my domain. So the URL, mrhomerepair.com, I bought that. Uh, I had to spend decent money for it because I wanted to make sure that if I did want to grow, you know, mrhomerepair.com slash Tulsa, mrhomerepair.com slash New Jersey, Mr. Homer, that kind of thing. It was scalable to that. Um, and there are some other franchises out there that, that, that I kind of modeled some things off, off of because frankly, franchises have cracked the nut for scale. And so you kind of look at, you look at some of these businesses and do some of the things that they do. Um, and, and if I do franchise, I'll maybe rethink the name. I'm not totally sure. I mean, the name itself is scalable for sure. Um, but there are other misters out there, if you will. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll make sure we're all buttoned up on the legal front there. Sure. Gotcha. The, um, you know, I wanted to talk a bit and I referenced it, uh, during the intro, um, when you're getting involved with a uh, with a startup business and you're it's just the day to day, you're constantly going 12, 13, 14, 16 hour days. Um, you've got so many different skills and you're capable of solving a multitude of problems. Just like running any other business. And when time is a really precious commodity, you start looking for ways to become more efficient. Now, when you're jumping from, from this type of work to this type of work to this type of work, whatever it is, and we kind of outlined that a little bit, took me about two minutes to mention them all at the beginning. Um, how do you work that out? How do you, how do you incorporate the, the, you know, the inefficiencies of having to know so much, have tools for everything um, and being able to kind of leapfrog that and become efficient? Because time's an issue. Let's let's face it. Time is an issue. Mm-hmm. No. How do you how yeah. do you respond to that? Yeah. No. I think I think you're putting your finger on on probably the single most important, or rather, the single biggest factor in why most handyman businesses don't grow um, is it is a wildly inefficient business. 
as you're as you're probably gathering, if you're a plumbing company, there is a finite amount of things that you can say yes to, and you can usually keep inventory that addresses those things on your truck. Correct. One thing I, I don't keep any inventory because the 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 inventory that I could keep would be the sum total of every part in a Lowe's or Home Depot. I mean, it could literally be anything. Um, and so I don't keep inventory. I, I, when I, when my week is laid out for me, I go to Lowe's and Home Depot on Saturdays and I keep two big boxes in my shop. One's labeled Lowe's and one's labeled Home Depot. And I buy everything that I think I need for the week, all the fittings, all the wax rings, all the, just all the stuff. And I buy extras to account for some of the common variabilities that I see in different houses. And I use what I need for the week and I throw everything else in the return box and I go return everything. And then, and I make, I try to make very limited amounts of trips, get everything I need and return everything I don't need, excuse me, at the end of the week. So, th so that would be an example of ways to smooth out some of that inefficiency. Um, if, and I try to be a good steward of my customer's time. So I try to show up with everything I need when they ask me to show up, but you're only able to show up with what you think you'll need to the extent that they've communicated well what their problem is. And sure. so if, if there's a pretty large gap between what they said they needed and what is actually needed, I charge them for a 30 minute trip to home Depot and go get what I need. Like, that's just, that's just part of it. I'm kind of an outsourced DIY uh, service. Um, <clears throat> my trailer is set up so that I have Milwaukee pack out stuff all over my trailer and everything is set up by function. So all my cutting tools are in one box, all my gripping tools are in one box, all my measuring tools are in one box. And so I have a pretty efficient mobile workshop that I can move in between tasks fairly efficiently all my drywall tools are in its own bin all my tile tools are in its own bin all my um you know masonry tools are in their own bin so all that stuff stays in my shop if i don't need it for the day and then for customers i think i put something out recently that i, I think i'm going to write a more extensive piece on retooling is just as important to understand in the handyman business as it is in major manufacturing right like like if, if like everybody pays for the retooling of a, a line in, ma in a manufacturing plant so you can't just go to a plant and walk in the door and say hey can you make me this thing well they're not tooled for that they have to you have to pay for them to retool to make your thing and then if you want them to make two things that are totally different you have to pay for that retooling whether that's in money or in time they'll say well we're we can make you this this week, but we have to make you the other thing next month because we're not, we have to retool. Well, the same thing for the handyman business. If I have to, if you give me a list of things to do and it's 10 things, five things, I'm patching drywall, I'm replacing a faucet and I'm, you know, putting up some fence pickets and, I'm, you know, replacing a piece of roof flashing for you. Well, those each individually might be one hour jobs, but it's, it's going to take me eight hours to do that. Not because I'm dawdling, but because like the drying times that are required for 
drywall patching and touch up painting and then moving over and taking all my wet brushes and all my wet stuff and preserving it and then moving to setting up my air compressor sure. so that I can, you know, it just takes time to move between those, to move between those jobs. And so the customer pays for that inefficiency because I'm on the job for eight hours. Gotcha. The challenge is when you're only, when you have three separate one hour jobs in a day, that is when you actually, you're only getting paid for three billable hours, but you're driving in between jobs. Those are hard days, but the business was set up as an experiment last summer. Can this actually work? Part of how I smooth out that inefficiency of getting three one hour jobs in a day is I charge one twenty five an hour. So if I work three one hour jobs in a day, I'm still going to bill 300 and whatever that is, $375. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's not the best day, but it's not nothing. The guy that, the guy that, you know, well, I know this guy down the road, he only charged me $50 an hour. Well, he won't be in business next year. He just won't be because he has, a, he has fuel and a truck and a family and all the things I have. Um, and so basically I just solve for that inefficiency by pricing. Are you, is it safe to say that your clients are paying you for what you know, as opposed to what you do? Yes, what you do, you get paid for that too. But really what they're paying you for is the fact that you know this multiplicity <clears throat> of, of, of mechanical and, and handyman uh, capabilities, if you will. Is that, is that, is that a, is a, is that a decent way to sum that up? Yeah. Yeah. It's both. Um, it's like, how do you pay an attorney? Well, you pay him for what he knows. He knows stuff that we just don't know. You're basically paying him back for the money and time he spent to go pour over all that crap, you know, back when he went to law school. Um, but you're also paying him because you just don't want to deal with the pain of it. Some people pay an attorney to set up an LLC for them. Well, you can do it in 15 minutes on your own for a couple hundred bucks on your state's website, or you can just say, oh, I'm not even going to mess with that. And you just pay someone to do it. For, for me, it's similar. A lot of it is paying for what I know. And a lot of it is paying for what I'm willing to do. Somebody, most people just don't want to fix their own fence pickets when it's 105 outside in Oklahoma. They'd rather have someone just go do it and, and, or to crawl into their crawl space. So it's a mix of both things. I'm learning that we're probably going to skip a generation of home maintenance knowledge between what our grandfathers knew and what our children will know simply because we're just not doing it. So <clears throat> There are jobs at times where people pay me for something that I know if they just thought about it for five seconds, they could do it for themselves for free, but they just don't. And they, and because they don't know, it feels to them insurmountable when the reality is 15 minutes on Google and they could have done it themselves, but, but they just don't do it. Um, the other thing that I've found, Mike, is that most of my clients have more money than time. Like they, they just, they value the time on a Saturday morning with their kids more than two hours of mowing their own grass or whatever it may be. And so mm -hmm. that's not how I live. Um, but 
that is how a lot of folks live and they're happy to pay someone to come do basic things so that they can do something else. Well, let, let me give you a quick little story, Rodney, on your, uh, your rate of 125. We're in the middle of a construct on the tail end of a construction project, moved into a new warehouse, spent adult money. Let's just say $25,000 on a contractor to build three big boxes. And then through all of this madness, somehow we knocked out the lights in the office right behind Mike there. Right. So, so Brian, who's our shop manager, he's sitting in it, literally sitting in the dark for six days with a little table lamp and we're calling people, trying to get people in and it's taking six days. And meanwhile, Brian's in there in the dark, right? Our guy's finally able to come back. What did it take him? Like 20 minutes to fix it, to get the light, literally get the lights back on. Said, all right, Hey, what do I owe you? Ah, Don't worry about it. It's on me. We're doing big work together. And I'm like, screw that. So I go to my checkbook. I write him a checkout for 250 bucks. Now, how did I come up with that number? I'm thinking about what's it worth to us? Well, it's worth a hell of a lot more than 250. Yeah, he was only there for 20 minutes, but we want that guy to be coming back. So I think the holy grail in services is not to charge by the hour, try and figure out a way to charge by value, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I agree with that. Um, By the way, that was pretty savvy of his part to say, don't worry about it. It's on me. We just did a big project together. God bless him for doing that, for having that foresight. But so yeah. that's those are fun when you can just give somebody money when they were going to give it to you for free. But um, I don't know how, how well, you think about that that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm always growing my business, and so I have to think about what is the move right now that will grow my business the most. Um, so there was a lady over Christmas. She said, "Hey, can you come help me set up my Christmas tree?" I've done this for years for my grandparents. You get it out of the attic, you pull it out, you get all the boxes, all the stuff. Fine. No problem. So I show up. Well, it was a pre-decorated tree that was sitting in her, her, her um, floor. She'd already had somebody pull it out of her attic. I literally just stood the thing up. Well, I'm not going to charge this lady $125. I literally just stood the tree up. Um, But She's like, well, while you're here, let me show you a bunch of other stuff. And so we spent 30 minutes writing down 15 things that are going to need to be fixed, you know, over the next few months. So there's definitely that. Um, Sometimes, sometimes it's just, unfortunately, you have to charge people for basic things. And it's not, it's not necessarily um, because you're gouging them or whatever, but it, but you do have to tool and retool and pay for gas and pay for your time. And you're saying no to something else to say yes to what they're asking you to do. And so um, to me, that is, that's maybe a part where this business can be pretty difficult is, is managing those awkward customer interactions where they're paying what I would consider real money, excuse me, a couple hundred dollars to, to do 15 minutes worth of work or, or something, but that's just the way it is. And and we just don't, as a society, value knowing how our home works. And so somebody has to pay for that. And it's, it's the homeowner. And I hate to sound, I hate to sound weird about it, but just think about everything that you'll buy in your lifetime. Nothing is more vital, complex, and expensive than your home. And it's probably the thing that most people know about the least. Like they just don't want to know. They don't want to know what's behind their walls. They just, for whatever reason, people just don't do it. And so they pay people to know about it. And that's where I think value is for a business like mine. 
no question about it. I uh, uh, that the and Mark and I've talked about this uh, ad infinitum. There's a massive trade skill gap in this country, and I'm I'm sure you know Mike Rowe. I'm sure you're familiar with Mike Rowe. Um, because about a third of what you said so far kind of falls into the pattern of what he espouses virtually every day, every week, every month, and every year. And the ability to do what you do is kind of rare, Rodney. It's kind of rare. Um, you know, there are those guys that uh, there's the electricians, there's the plumbers, there's the uh, there's the carpenters, and we can go on and on with the different individual trades. And each of these guys is probably good at other stuff too, but to have that um, that broad range of skills that you have is is kind of rare. And if if it's if if you think it's tough trying to get somebody to become an electrician or a welder or something along those lines, I mean, what's the what was that at last count, Mark? There's a, a trade gap in a trade gap that's approaching four million oh, in this yeah, country. Easy. Yeah, four million, four million jobs. Um, mm -hmm. imagine what you'd have to do to become a handyman. Okay. Now, uh, you've got a, uh, you've got a very diverse background and that certainly helps, but the, uh, um, I can, but I also understand what you're saying about that group of people out there. And there's a massive, massive group of people out there that just don't, they don't care. They don't care about that skill. Um, uh, no matter how simple the job might be. My father's an excellent example of that, and I, I mentioned it before. Um, he, he fancied himself a handyman with about eight different tools, uh, none of which could do the job, and each yeah. of which was a hand-me-down from his father, who couldn't do it either. Yeah. Hell, of, hell of an accountant, hell of a business owner, had his own certain specific, specific sets of skills, and he was tremendously successful you know, expediting those, but you know, to, 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 to loosen a stuck window was about, it was about a six hour job. Okay. Yeah. And uh, to his benefit, he put me in, he put me in a position where I had, uh, I actually learned the mechanical end of things when I was in high school and just kept doing that throughout my entire life. Yeah. I went to college and yes, I studied to be an accountant, uh, but I, I never pushed a pencil and proud to say I never did. That'll piss off half the people in my family, but that's all right. The uh, but having said that, um, it's it's those skills that I gathered that just I, I they're they're invaluable. And people yeah. love people. You get caught. The neighbor will come over and say, "Listen, Mike, I'm, I'm having a problem with my lawnmower over here. My uh, you know that I can't get the blades to turn. And we try to get oh, I yeah, we can fix that. And 20 minutes later, it's fixed. It's there's a tremendous feeling of accomplishment when you can do that. So I, I kind of understand where you're coming from. Um, and, uh, uh, but I'll tell you what, there's a, and there's also a huge gap between having their to having tools, knowing how to use them and why you're using them. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, you know, run a little bit on that. I'm interested now it's, and by the way, we're in the age of the tool in the, over the last 10 years, Virtually every style and type of tool has been improved unbelievably. I, I, I can't get over, I, for instance, I can't get over saws now. Saws are unbelievable. They're just the things that you can do that you couldn't do 20 years ago uh, mm -hmm. with a saw you can do now. So can you, can you run with that a little bit? Yeah, sure. 
Um, and something you said earlier, Mike, I think is, is also interesting to hit on most applicants for handyman positions probably fancy themselves handier than they are. Um, <clears throat> being handy, like to your point about the, the stuck window, just because you can over the course of a Saturday accomplish a home task doesn't mean that you should do it professionally. Like you can't go into every person's house and enter a period of discovery every time they give you a job. You kind of exactly. need to know that the, you need to know where you're starting and what the process is because you, you want to be a good steward of their money or you just won't be in business. Like people can't pay me $125 an hour to unstick a window. That takes me seven hours. Like you, you need to do that in one hour. It needs to happen right away. And you need to be able to identify what are the three most probable reasons this thing is stuck in the first place? Sure. Has it been caulked shut? Is it, is it a spring issue or is, has the, is it a wood window and it has swelled and never, and, and so that right away, you know what the issue is. And then you can either say, you know what, this actually is going to be a replacement issue. I'm not going to spend any more of your time. There's no charge to this. I actually think this is what's needed or you proceed and you get the job done. And so that there's one of the things to the, to the career path thing before I answer your other question, Mike, is I think there's room for handy men to become a professional, a profession, like an actual, like you go to a handyman course and you spend nine months becoming, you know, a seven out of 10 in every conceivable thing that could go wrong with a house sure. outside of the licensed trades and actually, and actually have it as a career right now. It's just guys like me who have nothing better to do than to watch videos about paint drying. Um, <clears throat> as far as the tool thing goes, I got into a little, not a thing. Uh, it came up on Twitter the other day. You need to have the right tools to do a good job but you don't have to have them all the first day you start a handyman business. You just, but you do need a basic set that's a lot larger than what your normal homeowner might have. And then you grow as you need tools for the job. For example, if I'm doing a tile job, you can cut tile with a $25 tile cutter that has a little diamond wheel on it and you snap it in half. But you could also mess up a lot of tile that way. And you can also chip a lot of the finishes on the tile that way. And if you're doing any sort of corners, you can't do it that way. So if you're gonna do more than 12 square feet over the course of the next you know, several months, you probably need a $500 tile saw that mm -hmm. has a, a wet saw. The problem with year one in the handyman business, you, if you're, especially if you're like me and you love tools in general, is like you could just work for tools. like. Like the other day, this lady needed a, she wanted a wire mesh screen put over a, a, a patio, like the inside of a patio window. She had this huge stone sort of porte sort of thing out of, over the front of her, her front door. And it had this window way up high and birds keep getting up there and it's disgusting. So she wanted to keep them out of there. Well, I have a 20 foot ladder that doesn't reach. So now I need to figure out how to get a 26 foot ladder. Well, 
you can't rent a 26 foot ladder around here. So I got to buy a 26 foot ladder. So basically I did that job for free by the time, by the time I did two hours worth of work, but bought a 26 foot ladder in the process, like I earned $0. Now that ladder was an investment. However, I hope I need a 26 foot ladder more than once over the next five years. So mm -hmm. that's, that really is the handyman crux. I try to rent everything that I can, because if I rent something, then I can pass it along to the customer and it doesn't seem weird. So if you, if you need me to build you a privacy fence, I'm not going to go buy a mechanical post hole auger. I'm going to rent one for $115 for the day. And then I'm just going to put that on the invoice that that's, that that's what was required for to get that job done. And so to your point, Mike, there actually are, there are, there, there are tools that make the job faster and more professional that you have to invest in. You can rent a lot of them. Um, I don't take on any cabinet making jobs. We just bought some property and I'm probably going to try to make the cabinets once we build a house, but I'm not going to make cabinets for somebody else for money because you need planers and joiners and, and track saws and different things to actually cut square cabinets sure. and, and do all the joinery. And I don't have all that. It would cost me another $2,000 minimum just to, just to be at like the table stakes level for a cabinet maker. Um, and I'm not a cabinet maker. So those jobs I just sub out or I just refer out and don't worry about them. When you, when you mentioned that the uh, not every applicant is as handy as they think they are, is mm -hmm. that the challenge with trying to scale your business is the talent that's available? I think so. I haven't totally, I haven't gone full bore with, with hiring a bunch of people yet, but I have put postings out and interviewed some guys. Um, the guy that I did hire is handy. He's exceptionally handy. Um, his challenge is most of his handy experience came from another country. And so when you live in another country, there's different codes, there's different materials, there's different, it's just different markets for the sealants we have here for sealing a shower pan is different than the sealants that you would have in uh, Chile or in the Ukraine. And so um, that's part of the obsession over doing jobs correctly is knowing what, what materials to apply to what, to every situation, right? You can drive around with a, with some, some white, you know, caulk on your trailer, but, but there's 35 other types of, of caulks and adhesives and sealants that could be used in a, any given situation. And I really try to make sure that my company is going to be the one that puts the right stuff, you know, if it's an exterior job, you're going to get exterior caulk on your windows. If it's a, if it's a shower pan, you're going to get, you're going to get stuff made by MapEye, the company that made the grout and all the stuff that goes together with that, with that shower pan. And mm -hmm. so I think long-term that will be a differentiator too, between my business and other just solo handyman is, is I can afford to, and will choose to make sure that the right materials that have been manufactured specifically for your situation are going to be applied to your home. But to your point, Mike, about inefficiencies, that takes learning, that takes inventory, that takes um, that takes extra trips to Home Depot, where I could just as easily just put just regular bathroom, you know, caulking on my trailer and not worry about it. Um, but long term, I think that's I think I think that'll hurt your business if you don't do things the right way the first time. Gotcha. What's um, I asked it. Well, I asked this question of of, of everybody we interview. 
Uh, <clears throat> we know what our first big win was. What was your first big win? And the definition of the first big win was the was the one that told you, you know what, I can make this work. I can, I'm, I'm, and it's it's what powered you on to get up the next day and just move this thing and push the needle forward. Um, so what would you define as your first big win? When did it happen? And give us a little description of it. I would say <clears throat> the first the first couple of jobs I did were for very, very basic things. Um, I installed a ceiling fan, wasn't exceptionally high, had straightforward wiring. Um, I did some drainage work for someone that was pretty identical to some work I'd done on my own home the year prior. Um, and then I replaced some exterior, rotted exterior siding. Um, the reason, and those are across two different customers, but those two customers were just ecstatic that I was able to solve their problem. And for me, they were basic. Like they were not, this was not, um, and this was not a huge issue. This was just something I knew how to do. I showed up and fixed it and they gave me money. And it wasn't the money. I wasn't thinking about the market. I just saw how relieved a person was that a very basic thing in their home got fixed. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of when I thought like, okay, I, I think I'm right about this. Like I think people know less or are willing or capable to do less in their homes than even I originally thought. And I'm actually capable of doing more than I originally thought. And I can make money at this. And so that was, that was, it was about six weeks in really where, where you start to realize like, this is actually a thing. People will give me money to do pretty basic things. And, you know, I had to prove out my pricing because I started high. I didn't start out at $60 an hour and then move up. I, I put a lot of effort and thought into pricing and I just went big early on and people paid it with no problem. I hardly ever have any pushback on pricing ever. Interesting. The, um, now moving forward, what are, what are some of the things that you are, what, what are some of your plans midterm, maybe even long-term that you're looking to do that are going to expand your business over and above taking on help, taking on additional help? Um, by summer of 2023, so this year, um, I want to be, I want to have a few maintenance, con recurring maintenance contracts in place with some multifamily owners. And um, I don't have a metric for that. Let's just call it more than a hundred doors of, of under management, so to speak, with maintenance contracts. And I want to be a go-to provider for these multifamily operators for their turns. So a great business for me and for them would be tenant within their 30 day window says, okay, I'm moving out next month. That triggers an immediate move out inspection by me. And we go make a list of everything that's going to need to be done so that the day that their moving truck is pulling away, we're pulling in with, with carpet cleaning, fresh paint, swapping out fixtures, whatever needs to be done. And then we end, you know, two or three days later with a deep clean and that, that new apartment, that apartment is lease ready. 
that <clears throat> I think that is a next phase of my business that could be really interesting just because of the scale potential. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I like about B2B is that if you run a bead of caulk in someone's bathroom, they're going to obsess over that bead of caulk. They want to know what it, they get. They're going to know what it looks like. They want to make sure that it's perfect. And I like doing good work, but it's just really difficult when you've got wavy walls and wavy floors and old fixtures to get everything perfect. But in a multifamily situation, they don't care. The tenant doesn't care. They just want to make sure that they're going to get their money when they move out. And the, the owner doesn't care. They want to make sure the tenant's happy and that the apartment functions. And so it's a good source of business. And I want to grow into more multifamily uh, level. That, that, that's, a big, that's, a big, um, that's a big target for me in 2023 is to move into the multifamily maintenance space. It's a great space. We, I have a little bit of experience in this world. We, we've owned a, we have a few rental properties. Every time a tenant turns, they call it a turn. Yeah. We've never turned a property. It's it's automatically thirty five hundred bucks, and we're we're kind of thankful if it is thirty five hundred bucks. A lot of times it's six thousand, it's seven thousand. They got to always repair drywall. They always got to do the paint. There's always cigarette stains on the carpet, so they always tear up the carpet. I mean, it's amazing what these tenants they just destroy a place, right? Yeah. And then if you can get with a management company that has 300 properties under management and you can hook up with that company, they're your distributor and they'll give you 30 properties right off the bat or 50. They'll, they'll test you out and they'll keep expanding it. A lot of these property management companies are starting their own construction because guess what? They figured out there's money to be made in owning that piece of the whole thing. So it yeah. exactly is the right part of the market. You're exactly right. Yeah. So I think I think staying in single family residential is kind of your... It's just your advertising. It's your engine. It, 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 it's, and it's good money too, but it, but it, you know, it's, you're, you're running max 70% utilization on your guys. Like you can't, you know, of an eight hour workday over the course of five days a week at 125 an hour, that's $5,000 a week potential, but you're not, but you're not billing. You're not billing all of that, but right. like you can't, you can't bill eight hours of every single day all week, unless you have, now lists are good for me. So if, if, if you give me a list of 10 things to do and you just blocked off me for the day and you'll pay a thousand dollars for me to knock all that out, that's perfect for me, but I just can't stack up 250 of those a year that you'll get, you'll get 40 of those a year. Sure. So, so the, the, the larger chunkier projects like the small bathroom remodels, the turns, those sorts of things are, 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 are something I'm really looking forward to building out. I'm curious when you mentioned that there's no, I'm intrigued by what you said. There's no handyman certification in the country, right? I don't know that there's none, but, but there's def, it doesn't seem to be a career. You don't really, anytime someone says, Hey, don't go to college, go learn a skill and work with your hands. Well, no one says go become a handyman. They say go become a plumber, electrician, or a HVAC guy. Right. Um, There's all kinds of other ways to make money with your hands, but, but being a handyman almost seems like a fallback career that like old guys do when they retire or, you know, guys that, that, that can't, that don't have a license do. It's just not like a thing. Um, There's your opportunity. My, my goal is to make it a thing. Like, and that's why I'm, that's why I'm paying my guy really well. Like he makes 55,000 a year, which in my market, um, handyman job postings in other part of town or advertising 45 to 50 um, hourly. 
my guy gets 55,000 on salary and his bonus is he gets 10% of everything he brings in himself. So, so if he sources a customer himself and throws it on the calendar, he gets 10% of that. Um, If we do a large project where the margins are outsized and he helps me get it done in four days instead of the five that we budgeted, then he'll get, he'll get a piece of that too. But basically his bonuses are based on his production of new business. Um, But if he does nothing extra, he'll get $55,000 whether he works on a Friday or not. Um, And so on the short run, I'll, I'll lose a little bit of money on that deal. But the other thing about handyman work is it's not regulated really. And so like, like he can, he can compete with me on the weekends, right? The most obvious side hustle is, is doing handyman work. And so, and so I need to make sure that I own all of his time and that he feels comfortable and taken care of so that when someone says, Hey, could you come over on Saturday and, and help me replace this, whatever he can run that through my CRM and know that he's going to get paid extra for that. And that helps him grow our business and it'll help him long-term. And I told him in the interview process, I said, look, I don't own you. I I'm paying you a full-time job. There's nothing stopping you from taking handyman jobs on the side. But if you do, that's going to make it difficult for me to afford you. And that, and our, this will be a pretty short-term deal. Not like I'm going to be mad at you and fire you. I just won't be able to afford you unless you're collecting a bunch of business on your own. And if you do that, you'll grow with me. Like we'll, we're going to grow together. And I think it's a good arrangement for both of us.